Okay, let's get into the Word. We're going to be all over the place today. We're eventually going to get to 1 Samuel 17, but let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We are halfway through our look at the story of David and Goliath, titled it Giant Faith, as we are pressing into David's faith in this battle that is before him. We'll get a lot of the context this morning. We will continue to press in how David images to us Jesus Christ. But we got to the point in the story where David has been clothed in Saul's armor. He hasn't tested it. It doesn't fit him. It's not right. He takes off Saul's armor. He picks up his staff. He picks up his sling and the five smooth stones. And now he is presenting himself to Goliath. And we'll get back to that scene in a moment. But where we, pit, where we ended a couple of weeks ago was looking at our armor that we are told that has been provided for us in our relationship with our almighty God through Jesus Christ. So in Ephesians chapter six, we're not gonna read through this section, but you can pick it up in verse 10 in regards to our strength is in the Lord and in the power of his might alone that we are to put on the whole armor of God. But jump down to verse 14. And again, we're gonna use this one in your own life. Two, we're going to immediately turn and watch Jesus be clothed in this same armor as he is tempted by the devil in Matthew chapter 4. And then three, we're going to look at, again, this armor, just remembering this is the same armor that David was clothed in 3,000 years ago. It's the same armor that God clothes you in today because our God never changes. Our armor, our protection, our power, it's all wrapped up in him. But I want you to look at the words. Just the words. We are told that our armor and God is truth. Now, what's the truth? How many of you have ever believed a lie? When you're confronted with the truth in the midst of you've held on to something that is untrue about God, about a relationship, about a circumstance, how effective was that lie in damaging you? and damaging your relationship with God, and damaging your relationship with another human being. The devil is a liar. The world's philosophies are flooded with lies. Even when, the, even when it's 90% true, there's a, there's a twisting. Satan, in presenting himself to Adam and Eve in the garden, did God really say? Says what God says twists it, perverts it. Now you're holding on to a lie. So when you understand and you, un you just sit in the consequences of lies in your life and you realize how powerful the truth is, how powerful um, the position in any circumstance that when you know that you have the truth, you have him who is true, you have the right perspective in the circumstance. It is a powerful protector in our life. And not only the truth, but righteousness. So what is righteousness? Have you produced your own righteousness, your own right standing, just as you look at yourself in the mirror? Have you done it? How about before the holy God? Holy, holy are you, Lord. 
only you are holy. And when I compare myself to Christ, unclean, unrighteous, but we're told that this armor, this protection, that we have been clothed in his righteousness. You are in right standing with your creator through faith in Jesus Christ. That is a powerful truth because the devil comes in and tells you you were unclean and you were unworthy. This world tells you the things that you believe about God out of his word, that you are the one who was off. You were the one who was broken. You were the one who was damaging society. Society. We are clothed in his righteousness. As an, it's an armor. It is a protector. It is powerful. And not only that, so you have truth and you have righteousness. Your feet prepared with the preparation of this, this gospel of peace. Again, in circumstances, there's, there's times just you, in your mind, you need to know the gospel. And you need to have the gospel prepared to proclaim to yourself in the moments that you need it. You need to know what it is that God has saved you from. You need to know the darkness that exists outside of the light of God that he has brought to you. You need to know all of the promises that he has given to you in him through this proclamation of good news. Yes, you're going to die in this flesh. All of us are going to die. But you were promised to have eternal life through Jesus Christ. And not just his life, but his abundant life. Today, right now, again, the, you need to have a, a, this armor. The idea in regards to it is that you are prepared to proclaim the gospel into every circumstance in your life, into every conversation. This world, it's not about politics. It's not about money. It's not about the football game. It's not about the hobby. This life, your life is consumed with and wrapped up in your creator, in your creator alone. And that's the message of the good news because in the gospel, there is such peace, agitation. Just the, I just, I picture all that imagery of the storms and the crashing waves. When I have the reality of the truth of the gospel in my mind and in my heart, the circumstances still. That water becomes like glass, and it's not that the circumstance has stopped. It's that I am, I am in the peace that Jesus provides in my soul in the moment because there are many things that agitate us. This faith, faith in Jesus Christ. Again, and this, the, it's linked to the idea of that the enemy is throwing his javelins at you, I think of these cross bolt, bow bolts or an arrow being shot out of, out of a bow, just this whole idea of this, these fiery darts that he is seeking to penetrate through your armor. As we turn to Jesus in moments, as, as Satan is tempting him, there's fiery darts that he is throwing at Jesus, attempting to get through his armor. But Jesus is protected because of his belief, of his trust and his father, he knows who his creator is. And the, well, <laughs> sorry, delete that out of the tape. Jesus is not created, okay? You know who your creator is. Jesus knows who his father is 
at all times from history. Jesus is not created, just so we know. We'll get into some of this in a minute. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, our God has existed as such for all eternity. But faith, we trust God. We are confident in who he has proclaimed himself to be. If you know who he is and if you know in whom you trust, the circumstances do not matter because you know that he's in control. Even if the circumstance hurts, even if it's challenging, even if it's costly, even if it's wonderful, you continue to trust in him. Faith is a piece of armor. Salvation, I already mentioned that a little bit in regards to the gospel. But again, know, know what it is that God has saved you from. Know the deliverance that not just in history, before the foundations of the world, you've been created in Christ Jesus. His payment was already pre-planned to save you from death, to save you from sin. Salvation, the knowledge of it, the understanding of it, the proclamation of it is something that we abide in. You do not need to be saved again. You may need deliverance out of a circumstance. You may need protection in danger in the midst of a life circumstance, but ultimately the salvation of armor that's being discussed You've already been removed from the danger of death. You've already been removed from the danger of sin in your life. It's been removed as far as the east is from the west. It's gone, forgiven. You mess up. How often does Jesus forgive you? How many times have you gone to Jesus asking for forgiveness? In a day, 70 times seven? This perfect number, he will, if you turn to him, he is always there to cleanse and to remind you, I have saved you. I have cleansed you. Here's where the adjustments that we're going to make in life and in mind and in heart to sanctify you. But salvation, it is a gift. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you already have it. And there's a future day coming when you will be fully saved. Amen? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Again, often we're going to watch, turn to Jesus in a moment, looking to the Word of God as the offensive armor that we have. Both, it's both defense and offense. When you know the Word of God, and not just knowing the Word of God in your head, in study, but you have a spiritual connection. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you through faith in Jesus Christ, that you are having an ongoing conversation with the creator and the source of the word that you're reading. And not only as you read it and you know it and he gives you understanding and application in your life, but when I don't preach the word to myself in the moment of temptation, that is when I fall. I can believe in God. I can trust in my salvation provided by God. I can have a lot of other things. But if I'm not preaching the truth of God's word to myself, I'm going to stay in my flesh. I'm going to stay in my anger. I'm going to stay in my lust. I'm going to stay in my covetousness. I'm going to stay where I am because I'm justifying, I'm twisting God's word in my own mind and in my own heart. But when I start preaching the truth of God's word to myself, when I start reading the verses, when I start quoting the verses, it is, it is a dart, it is a sword swing right back at the devil. 
And when you quote it, he flees. You draw near to God. You draw near to the source of this word. We are told that the devil flees from us. And in this, there's an ongoing conversation with God, and it's praying. And it's not just praying in your flesh and in the thoughts of your heart. The description that we have here in the armor is a spiritual conversation with God, praying to God in the spirit. And yes, this can mean speaking in tongues. I don't pray in tongues. I don't speak in tongues. God's chosen not to give that gift to me, and I'm all right with that. He's given it to some of you. But praying in the spirit is praying with the heart of God. It's praying with his mind. He is the one that is leading us. If we have time this morning, we're going to end in Romans 8. The Holy Spirit of God, as we walk in the Spirit, as we walk with him, he is in us, speaking to us, praying through us, even if we can only get a groan out in this conversation with God. It's part of of the description of the armor that we have, the truth of God, the righteousness of Jesus Christ the gospel of Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, armed, amen? All right, now this imagery, these words, these definitions, now let's go sit with Jesus. Turn to Matthew chapter three. And the connection, the big connection in in this scene that we're gonna look at with Jesus in his baptism and then in his temptation you can parallel this scene in David's life. Because when Samuel is sent to David to anoint David with oil, we are told that David, that the Holy Spirit comes upon David from that day forward in his life. When you sit with Jesus, so the Father has sent the Son, the very eternal word of God, we are told in John chapter one, to tabernacle in the flesh, that behold, men and women saw the almighty God in the flesh, full of grace, full of truth, the God who created the heavens and the earth that spoke us all into existence became a man and tabernacled among us. And we have the description, just brief snapshots of his growth and all those little scenes. But it's here, the beginning of his public ministry, that he's coming to John the Baptist. And this is Matthew 3.13. Jesus comes from Galilee, Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said, permit it to be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. And this again, just by definition, baptism is an act of righteousness. It's an act of obedience. Jesus wasn't being baptized to wash away any sins in repentance, but the immersion that he is participating in as an example As he is rising up out of this immersion, the description is he is ultimately immersed in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Almighty God, to do the mission that he was sent to do. This is the beginning of his public ministry. You sit with David being anointed as king. He is being, we would use the New Testament term, he's being filled with the Holy Spirit. His life is being flooded with God. He is being immersed into God. He is being empowered by God to fulfill the calling that God has for his life and all of its variety that we're gonna follow along with David. Same thing in Jesus's life. Verse 16, when he was baptized, 
Jesus came up immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were open to him. And he, I think that that's a lowercase he, I think John saw the spirit of God descend like a dove and alighting upon Jesus. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we're gonna sit in David is identified as a son of God. This is uh, the idea that we are going to end in this morning with the question of whose son are you? Here you have father, son, and spirit all there empowering the son to do what he is called to do. Just like the almighty God empowered David to do what he called him to do. And just like we're watching David immediately being sent, sent into a battle scene between he and Goliath to be the champion of God standing in the midst. We are watching Jesus in chapter four of Matthew immediately being driven into the wilderness to do battle with the devil. Look at chapter four. Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness. Why? To be tempted by the devil, to be tested. It says when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, that connection of the 40 days of Goliath presenting himself, we're told in the gospel of Luke that the devil was there for these 40 days, tempting Jesus day in and day out. So it wasn't just at the end when it says here that he was hungry and then the tempter came to him when he was at his weakest. For 40 days, the enemy, the champion of darkness, so to say, is presenting himself to God in the flesh, tempting him. Every temptation. Where the New Testament tells us your temptations that you struggle with, those things that you fight against, those things that you're in battle with. Jesus was tempted in every point that all of us were. All 8 billion human souls that are alive on this day, all of the temptations that they endure and how common and how unique those are, we are told that there was the enemy tempting Satan, tempting Jesus. And how did Jesus answer verse four? Well, the temptation comes to him if, and again, the question is, since you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Again, think of that temptation. If you had the power and you have not eaten food for 40 days and you are literally sitting on death's door, you need to eat and you have the power to make bread, go ahead, do it. Make bread for yourself, provide for yourself. Uh, restrict, unrestrict yourself. Jesus placing himself into human flesh is now restricted to humanity. He couldn't just walk around and make bread whenever he felt like it. He emptied himself of his godhood to become a man. Everything that he did was in obedience to the father. So he wasn't going to undo his human nature so that he could provide for himself as God in the moment. And that's the temptation that he's dealing with. What does he answer? It's written. Here's what the word of God says. Spirit of God, the word of truth. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do you believe that? 
I think of this thing. You shall not live by the food that you eat alone day in and day out. Yes, you need it. It's your necessary food. It's your necessary drink. But it's not your only source of nourishment. You shall live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Genesis to Revelation. Then the devil came and took him into the holy city, into Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, said to him, since you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, twisting of the word, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foots against a stone. Jesus says to him, this is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Is God allowed to test you? Yes or no? Can God test you? Does he have permission? Does he have authority? You're the creature. He's the creator. He has the right to do unto you anything that he wants. And this is, this is the armor. This is, this is faith. Do you trust him? Do you trust that he's good? Do you trust in the temptation, in the test? Again, God does not tempt us with evil, but he does bring tests into our life. Satan asks God for permission for access to your life. And I'm sure that there are times when God says no, and there are times when God says yes. And God is not there waiting for your failure. God is not there looking for your destruction. God is there to give you the power for success. He's there to give you himself. He's there to make himself known to you. In every single one of these instances where you are being tested, your faith is being challenged. The darts are whizzing over your head one after the other. And if you drop that shield an inch, it's going to pierce you right in the middle of your forehead. You ever been in that position? God, where are you? Don't you care? I thought you said you were with me. I thought you said you wouldn't abandon me. Where are you? Faith, he's right there. As he promised he would be. In control. And even if you lose your life, you're just losing a body because you will not lose your life because your life is in him. And the moment you close your eyes in this body, you open your eyes into his presence. But our instruction, don't test God. You can ask him questions. We have lots of questions. We have lots of curiosities. But we are not in the position of the examiner to tell God to prove himself to be who he claims to be. He's already done it a thousand times in history, millions of times in history. He's already done it a thousand times in your life. We don't come to God with the test, with the examination. If you are God, then do this for me. If you are my savior, then do that for me. That's the position of pride. 
That's the position of arrogance. That's a position of the adulterous heart, seeking the signs, seeking the wonders, seeking after knowledge rather than simply just trusting that he is who he has made himself known to be. This is is all very powerful. Again, the devil takes him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Kingdoms of the world under the authority of the devil at this time and in so many ways at our time in history, all of their glory, all their riches. Jesus, if you are the son of God, put your head on the ground and worship me and all that I have, I'll give to you. You ever had that kind of temptation? If you do this for me, says a person, if you do this for me, says the devil in your mind, in your heart, abandoning what you know to be true out of the word of God, have that visual representation in your head. In forsaking the Lord, you're you're turning away and you're putting your head on the ground, in submission, in worship, to an idea, to an idol, to the devil himself because of something that you think that you're going to get that is going to bring you glory rather than submitting your life continually to God. God, may my life simply illuminate you. May my life reflect the glory that you have had from eternity past Whatever your plans and your purposes are in creating me in the first place, may this man do nothing but image you back. I don't need my personal glory. I don't need to be esteemed. I don't, I don't need anything other than to fulfill the purpose that I was created. And I was created to have a oneness with my creator. Like, do you, do you feel the tempted? Do you feel how often that you're pulled away from that idea? Do you, I mean, do you not sit in your daily life and all of the, the thoughts and the decisions that you have going on day in and day out, how much of it revolves around bringing glory into your own life, exalting yourself as a husband, as a wife, as a child, in your occupation, in the body of Christ? I want to be great in the body of Christ. You ever feel that temptation with James and John? You want to sit at the right hand of Christ? Do you not want the most that God wants to give to you? Yes or no? Do you ever lift yourself up a little, a little bit higher than the person sitting next to you? Holy Spirit's always right there to communicate truth. And if you want to be great in his kingdom, what does he tell us to do? Become the servant of all. Why? Because that's what our almighty God did in becoming the son in the flesh, to become the servant of all, to be obedient to the death on the cross, resurrected in the power of the almighty God. And that and that alone is the power that he has granted to you to live out your life in in faithfulness and gratitude and joy and whatever that looks like day in and day out. 
So all the imagery that we have of warfare, of the tempter coming in, every, the, the solution is all wrapped up in your relationship and just simply doing and believing what God has already instructed us in. Now, it's really hard because our minds and our hearts get in all these kinds of knots. The devil is really good at studying us. We're told here that uh, Jesus says, away with you, Satan, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve, that the devil leaves from him and angels are sent to minister to Christ in that moment. In the gospel of Luke, we're told that when the devil leaves, he only leaves because he's waiting for the opportune time. Jesus was not abandoned by Satan. The devil fled from him, but to a distance where he could still see, waiting for those opportune times to continue to step in, whether he was influencing the men and women around Christ, like he influenced Judas to betray him, influenced, um, influenced Peter to rebuke Christ, influenced Peter to deny Christ, And there God is in all of those moments, bringing about, keeping relationship, restoring all of that. But we are studied in every single battlefield that we come across in our daily life. All right, 1 Samuel 17. That's not an introduction at all. It's really jumping into the middle of our text as we are talking about the battlefields that we... Uh, that are in our life every single day. This is all played out in the battlefield that is a spiritual plane. It is played out in our mind, in our heart. Rarely is it ever played out in the physical world. As we get, as we lock into David's comment here, I want you to have this question as, as we proceed in the text. At what point was David's victory over Goliath established? So hold on to that question as we go through this text. So right now, as we're jumping into the middle of 1 Samuel 17, David is there presenting himself to Goliath. Goliath is cursing him with some pretty vulgar language, cursing him to his gods telling David to come to him. Verse 45 is David's response. David says to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, with the javelin. The devil comes to you with words. People come to you with words. The circumstance comes to you. The enemy is approaching you and coming to you. David's response, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Look at, just look at the courage of his statement, the faith of David's statement. Here he is, he is, you know, I'm not sure how far apart they are, how, you know, they're yelling at one another. And you can, you can see, you know, just Picture all the epic battle scenes where you have one army up on one ridge line. There's another army on the other ridge line. They're all geared up for war. The war drums are beating. They're rattling all of their armor, shouting, making as much noise as possible. Here comes the giant in all of his glory and all of his mass. You can't do anything in regards to 
your own strength, your own efforts in overcoming this enemy. And David's faith, the shield that he holds up, you come to me fully armed with all of these weapons of war that if you start swinging at me, at me I have absolutely no defense for. However, I am coming to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. The name of the Lord of Yahweh, of the hosts of heaven, these angelic armies, these angelic beings that he has created. He is also in this physical realm, and we can sit with this just in the body of Christ. You are not alone. You are not all by yourself on the battlefield. You have brothers and sisters that are walking alongside of you. The, uh, the enemy is coming against the Almighty God. He is coming against the church, the body of Christ, continually slandering the church. And they, there David is, standing as the man in between, being the, the king that he has been appointed to, anointed for. The Holy Spirit is upon him, equipping him in this moment. He is coming in the name of the Lord. This day... The Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines of, uh, to the birds of the air and to wild beasts of the earth. Ancient warfare, even modern warfare is very gross. But here's the point. Here's the purpose. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And again, just, just sit in this statement in your own warfare. When you are coming against the enemy in whatever that battle looks like in that moment, you are standing in the Lord, you are clothed in his armor, and remember that as you are drawing near, you are drawing near in the name of the Lord of hosts so that you will know that God is. And... As those who are witnessing your life, they will know that the almighty God who created the heavens and the earth is your God. You ever sat in that testimony in anybody else's life? When you watch hell be unleashed in somebody else's life and they walk through that life experience, whether it's for a moment or whether it's for decades, and they honor the Lord well, does that not give you strength and knowledge and understanding in your own relationship with God? Yes or no? Read the biographies of those who have had victorious faith in God throughout history. Have relationships with men and women that are mature in Christ, that have been through the ringer, that have been through battles, that can proclaim to you, God is. He makes himself known in these scenes in our life. All this assembly, not only will all the world, but this assembly, these people that are standing behind me, shattered in their fear. On this day, they will know that their God is. And this, this is the bold, giant, powerful, true, humble, courageous faith that David is proclaiming in the moment. Why? 
They shall know that the Lord does not save with the sword and the spear that Goliath is coming with. Why? The battle, it's the Lord's. And he will give you into our hands. I want you to remember, when the, when the nation of Israel is asking for a king, the purpose that they're asking for a king is for the king to go out and do battle for them. That's why their ask for a king is such a rejection and abandoning of God. And David, even being as anointed as the king that the people have asked for, he is a man after God's own heart, recognizing he is not the one going out to battle. The Lord, this is the Lord's battle. Yet, do you have to participate with God in the battle? Yes or no? Yeah. David, again, I, I, I have this, this question for you. At what point was the victory over Goliath established in David's life? How early on was it? Was the victory over Goliath in David's life established years before out in the shepherd field as he's getting to know his God, singing to his God? Was it in those moments where the beast came to snatch a sheep and he chased the beast down and was able to have victory over this wild animal and the power and strength of the Lord? Did God show himself to be true to David historically? What do you think? How about when David hears what Goliath is saying, hears the voice of the enemy, and he's hearing it from a totally different lens than the culture is. And he stirs up the people, and he gets taken into Saul's presence. And he says, I know they're, they're the enemy is defying the armies of the Lord. I'll go. Was that the moment? At what point was the moment of David's victory? Or was it not until the stone was sunk into Goliath's head or until Goliath's head was removed from his shoulders? At what point was David's victory? To me, there's a sequence of events that bring about this moment of victory on the battlefield. For you, the battle that you are going to encounter today the success in the Lord in that battle is something that's been invested in historically. If you haven't invested in your relationship with the Lord in history, if your faith has already been floundering in history, if you don't know who your creator is in history, how victorious do you think you're going to be on today's battlefield? So when is the best time to invest in the warfare that you know that you're going to encounter in your life? Chinese proverb, the best time to have planted a tree was 20 years ago. When's the next best day? Right now. Invest in your relationship with God so that you know that you are that you only exist for him, that you are only clothed in his armor, his majesty, that in the moment of the battle, the battle is his. 
The battle was already won on the cross over death and the devil. All the devil can do is yell at you. He can't do anything else to you. Death, where is your sting? It's gone. You have eternal life. You got pain in this body, right? Some of you are getting older. There's aches and there's pains. There's relational hurts. There's challenges. We don't discount any of that, but you have life already. The victory has already been provided for on this battlefield of the cross 2,000 years ago. His resurrection is the evidence of that victory. And you press into and possess everything that Jesus is, you have through faith in him alone. You are co-heirs with him. He is already seated in the heavenly places at the right hand of his father, at the right hand of your father. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you are positionally seated with Jesus. How do you like that as a promise for the battles that you go through every single day? It's awesome. So it was when the Philistine arose and he drew near. David didn't turn tail and run, but he hurried and he ran toward the battle, toward the army to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag and took out a single stone. It says he slung it. He struck the Philistine in the forehead. In, the, in Judges chapter 20, there's a, there's a sentence in regards to the Benjamites that they could sling a stone to the breadth of a hair. And you look at Goliath again in this position. David, one shot. He's got a five-shooter, right? He's got five stones. One shot. Goliath has a helmet of bronze on his head. From a distance, sinks a stone just south of the helmet where it sinks in to his forehead. Not the power of a young athletic man. The power of God. This is, this is the Lord's battle. Not the yes, the accuracy and the skill that he's developed as a shepherd, for sure. But ultimately, that stone hits the mark. He did not miss. He did not sin. He was not off. The battle is the Lord's. It hit the intended point because that's where God wanted it to land. And the giant falls face down, sinks into his forehead, falls on his face on the earth. David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and the stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. No, stone, uh, no sword in the hand of David, so therefore David runs over the Philistine, takes out his sword, and he draws it out of its sheath, and he kills him, cuts off his head with it. Totally gross. Uh, we already read through this last week. Philistines flee. The Jews chase him down. David's carrying around the head of the Philistine, brings it into Jerusalem there in verse 54. Jerusalem, again, this is not a city that is... Um, the Jews are living there, but the Jebusites rule over it. This is a city that David is going to conquer, and that's in 2 Samuel chapter 5. But here's, here's where we're going to end this morning, and this is also the, the narrative that we'll pick up as we get into chapter 18 next week. So when Saul sees David, so again, now you're backing up in the scene. So as Saul and David have had this interaction already, 
Saul is given the promise that whoever is victorious on this field of battle over Goliath that he is going to give his daughter in marriage to. As Saul is watching David go, Saul is turning to Abner, sees him going out to the Philistines. So he says to Abner, the commander of his army, whose son is this youth? David wins. He's going to become a son-in-law of the king. Abner says, as your soul lives, O king, I don't know. Had a little bit of interaction before. You could tell Saul doesn't value David any more than the soothing music that David provides. Says, the king says, inquire whose son this young man is. Then David returned from the slaughter of the Philistines. Abner took him and brought him before Saul, the head of the Philistine in his hand. Saul says to him, whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Whose son are you? Sit in that question. You know, we're told in a, we have no time to get into it this morning, but I would encourage you to go meditate in Romans chapter eight. Contrast walking in the flesh and walking in the spirit. Identifies the Holy Spirit as the spirit of adoption that you have been adopted into the family of God. That you used to be a child of wrath, a child of disobedience, but now through adoption, through faith in Jesus Christ, that you were a child of the living God. And yet this is such powerful imagery because we're told in Romans 8, it's as we enter into prayer and those conversations that you're in the battle, you're in the moment, you're in the stress, you're in the pain, you're in the confrontation, you're in confusion, you're in all of your lack and you realize it and you know it. That there's this simple reality, the Holy Spirit of God enables you to cry out to this being who's created the heavens and the earth and say, Abba. Father, Dad, worship team, come on up. That ability to cry out to whatever it is that God is, that ability to speak to him and to know and understand that he's your daddy, that is your first point of victory in any conflict that you will cross in your life and you are going to cross many of them as the Lord tarries. You have this position that you are, you are a protected child. You're, you're almighty God. He exists as your dad to give to you whatever you need in your education, in your upbringing, you need to be clothed. He's given you your righteousness. You need your food. He's given you your water. You need or your, your bread to eat. You've given, he's given you the, the water that you need to satisfy your thirst, the imagery of his word, the imagery of his, of his spirit. Again, when you talk about all of these things that you incur on the battle, um, that you run across in the, in the battlefields of life, it's being in that moment of, of being able to cry out to God that you are my dad and I trust you and I believe that you are all a dad is supposed to be, that you are good, that you are present, that you are a protector, that you are a provider, 
that you love me and that you care for me, that you are raising me to inherit all that is yours, that I have your DNA, I have your mind. I don't lack anything because you and you alone are my all. And you've told me that you have given yourself to me. We are one with you. You have never forsaken me and you never will. You are there with your word. You are there with your spirit. You are there with your arms. You're there with your peace. You're there with the gospel. You're there with truth, hope, confidence. You've already given to me every example I need. You've given to me the authority, the power, the knowledge that's necessary to be a child of God and to live a life of godliness and to live a life that reflects you. So God, help me. Cleanse me from all of my sins, Lord, from all of my unrighteousness. Cleanse me from my unbelief. Cleanse me from my rebellion. Cleanse from me, Lord, all of the yearnings that I have that are separate from you. And create in me that heart that you've promised, Lord, that's clean and that is your temple because therein you dwell. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.